Tim, I look forward to seeing you at Compass in Melbourne tomorrow. That's right, Abe. Compass is coming to Victoria. We'll be in town on Tuesday, November the 21st, which is, as you correctly surmise as we're recording this, tomorrow we'll be reflecting on 2023 and projecting into 2024. So join 3AW's Russell Howcroft, Bank of Queensland marketer Melody Townsend, Dentsu Moneyman, I don't know if he'll agree with that description, Ben Shepherd, Thinkerbell strategist Hannah Nichols, and Zenith boss Jason Tonelli for a really wide-ranging chat over a glass of wine or perhaps a beer. Go to any recent post from Unmade and click on the Compass link to book. Start the week with Unmade. Setting the agenda for the week in media and marketing. Today, TV goes to war. How the next phase of the platform's battle may go down. And who just bought a chunk of Southern Cross Osterio? Unmade. It's Monday, November 20. I'm A Beauty and good morning, Tim Burrows. Good morning, Abe. I've got to say it's really nice being back in Tasmania for a few days after a lot of travelling. How was your weekend? Speaking of uh, in Tasmania, my weekend was great. My in-laws have a little cabin, a riverside shack, really, uh, kind of inland, about 40 minutes from where I live. And I was up there on the weekend Driving around an old Daihatsu F20, an old four-wheel drive, banging around with my kids and towing them on a, a rubber mat and grass sledding like the old-fashioned, the old days. And then you know you're getting old when your 10-year-old son gets behind the wheel and tows you on the grass sled. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a change of roles, but it was a really, really nice weather and a bit of fun on the weekend. How was yours? How quaintly Tasmanian. <laughs> hey, I um, my 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 weekend. I spent a big chunk of it. I've had a bit of a, a move of base within Tasmania in recent days. So um, I spent a, a big chunk of the weekend kind of um, setting up for that, which um, which is actually a, probably a good place to start today because I spent at least two hours setting up my smart TV. Two hours, Tim? I mean, goodness, I know you're an old bloke, but how old are you? <laughs> Mate, the thing is, this is just following the process. Have you set up a smart TV recently? Not recently. By the time you set up the speaker settings, the uh, connecting it to the soundbar, then logging in to each individual streaming app, um, then downloading um, each of the streaming apps that aren't already preloaded, then um, deciding and, and, and reconfiguring the order. Um, then mine is one of those kind of what they call Samsung frame TVs where it then plays art when you're not doing anything. It's literally, there's no, there's no just like plugging it in, switching on, and there it is. Um, it's, it's a process. It really is. It's interesting too. I've got a Samsung smart TV and I note the YouTube app cannot be uninstalled. So it's really interesting uh, kind of how the deals that have been done, but in, but kind of linking to our first story, uh, the war between the free-to-air networks and the pay TV lobbies ramping up. Um, and you say it's linked to smart TVs, but Tim, why why are they at war? Yeah, this is exactly it. So there's um, some legislation which um, hasn't quite yet hit the floor of Parliament, but will fairly soon, which is about uh, the word is 
being being used as the shorthand or the jargon is prominence. So prominence of individual networks uh, own apps on that real kind of crucial battleground of the first page of the smart TV. So, you know, to to use the example I'm talking about, you know, when you open up that television for the first time, you'll see uh, perhaps 10 or maybe 15 apps are visible. Um, they're already preloaded. They're ready to go. Although, as I say, you have got to log in if you happen to have them. Um, but if they're not there, then it's going to be a real battle to make people find it. So this this is about the argument. Now, it, it kind of feels to me that given that some apps are there, some streaming services are there and some aren't, that some are paying to be there. Um, and, and as I say, in my case, it's Samsung, but it's the same with all of the, the manufacturers. And the argument from free TV is this isn't really in the best interests of consumers that for instance you can't find the nine now app or the seven plus app or 10 play or sbs on demand or indeed um uh, abc iview either you have to go through a much more convoluted process of uh scrolling off to the left and finding the app store and searching for each one individually you know letter by letter then downloading it, then going out, then going back in and moving them onto that homepage and on and on it goes until they're there. Now, I guess I'm a, you know, somebody who's interested in media and writes about media. So I went to the effort of doing that, but will your average viewer bother to do that? And that's, that's the, that that's one of the questions is, is, you know, are the, the free TV networks disadvantaged by this, or is it just business? You know, the others have paid Samsung to be there. So why, if they want to be there, why shouldn't those free to air networks be there? So, so it's, it's becoming a bit of a battleground, which is in recent days has started playing out in, in ads, both um, TV ads and print ads as well, as they both kind of make the argument and make their case. I understand why the free to air networks would want to be there, but is there any evidence that the Australian public actually want or, or prefer or even care about having, having the network shown more prominently? That's the ultimate question because everybody is busy doing their surveys. And of course, they all ask the question in the way that uh, gives the answer that, that they want. Um, so, for instance, where Foxtel, which looks like it is paying to be there because certainly, um, you know, the likes of um, uh, Binge, which is their entertainment app, and KO are there. Um, their argument is, or, or, or the way they're presenting the argument is, do you want the government interfering in how your TV looks? And I guess the choice is, do you want Samsung deciding or LG or, or Sony or whoever deciding how your TV works or the government legislating? So, and, and so that's the sort of emotive argument from the, the, pay TV sector who are paying to be there. But then, yeah, you've got the, um, the, traditional free-to-air networks, now the free apps, who uh, are obviously ad-supported. And they're, I, I guess, they're arguing for a version of special treatment. So who's right? Well, this is a battle between two self-interested sides. But that doesn't mean that either of them is entirely wrong or right. 
in the end, um, there's going to have to be some sort of, um, decision from the government, which, which won't, won't keep everybody happy. Um, it's, it's a more difficult one because it's not like when it comes to we're protecting your free sport, where, of course, the public want their free sport because it is still there if they go looking for it. It is. And I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is a government decision. I mean, surely it's just a commercial one. Are you paying to play? I mean, surely it's as simple as that. Yeah. Look, I guess. And one of the problems is when you when you get these two self-interested sides lobbying, you know, on their own behalf, the danger is you actually forget about the consumer, the mo- those most important people. And I suppose that thing is, what do they want? And yeah, if I think about my experience, as I say, it was literally just yesterday, so it's super fresh, of coming to that first page. Do you know what? I, it, it really does feel that um, the 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 deal done between, as I say, in my, my case, it was Samsung and the people who've paid to be there means I am seeing a slightly distorted version of what I'd actually want. Because as I say, I had to go off and search and find the other ones that didn't happen to be there. So, you know, in the end, I think maybe that's the problem is um, consumers are being a little bit forgotten about in this battle. So what else do Astra and the free TV lobby disagree about? Well, quite a lot at the moment. It's actually getting quite spicy. You might remember I came back all all excited from um, Upfront season a few weeks back where Foxtel had announced at their Upfronts on Cockatoo Island that they were basically creating a breakaway audience measurement currency, Mm. um, which obviously was a a huge one because that would potentially move them away in time from Oztam, which is the main measurement system. So they they, they had renewed for one more year. Little development in that last week where OMG, Omnicom Media Group, effectively threw its weight behind this Foxtel breakaway or alternative system so that's that's one thing they're disagreeing about another and then the one which has just been down the years has been the long long bugbear for for as long as foxtel has existed is the anti-siphoning laws these rules that say certain sports have to be offered first to the free-to-air networks before anybody else can have a bite at them next the departure lounge Unmade. Tim, let's touch on something you covered in Best of the Week on Saturday. You saw the ACCC chair, Gina Cascotlieb, speaking about the news media bargaining code. What was she talking about? Yeah, I must admit, on Friday, I had one of those complete imposter syndrome moments when I went along to the um, Victorian Country Press Association, where I, I, I was there to talk about the impact of AI on the media. And when I looked at the programme, I realised I was coming on after the Victorian premiere and before Gina Cascotlieb. And it really felt like there was there was one person on that list who who perhaps shouldn't have been there. But that's a that, that that's another story about my insecurities. But um, but what that did mean was I was I, I was in the room to see um, uh, Gina Cascotlieb speak about how the ACCC is thinking about the news media bargaining code and um, how it might evolve going forward. Now, one of the things which um, is worth kind of bearing in mind is that, um, to a certain extent, the ACCC has done its job now 
when it comes to the news media bargaining code. You know, it created the code and then handed it over to the government. So now it has a bit of an advisory role to the government, but doesn't directly pull the levers when it comes, for instance, to designating um, which, which platforms are covered under the code. So that was something I then got the chance to ask from the audience was, well, what could happen um, next year when, as the, you know, the, the industry is, is beginning to presume, Meta does not sign a whole new series of deals with the, the, the publishers and potentially like it's done in Canada, starts blocking news publishers from appearing in um, uh, um, on on Facebook and Meta's other services. So that that's super fascinating because I um, I'd sort of thought, well, you know, that could be it. If Meta's not sharing them, then you know, Meta doesn't have to pay them. Um, but one of the points she made was that would be them using their market power. And that could potentially, and she was very much talking in hypotheticals, you can go into best of the week post to see the direct quotes from her, but that would potentially be another use of market power, which could be regulated by other ACCC powers. So that was super interesting because that was, um, that, that was really um, saying that um, this would not be the end of the story. Sedja, you wrote about the news media bargaining code for, for Choose Data recently. What did the publishing bosses say about prospects for the code's renewal? That's right, Abe. And the existential worry I picked up in the conversations I had was that there's something like $200 million that could just evaporate from the media landscape here. That's money used to hire journalists, retain a comprehensive reporting team, set up new verticals, pay off debts. The sense that I got from the publishing bosses I spoke to was that dire consequences would follow if those deals can't be renewed. Um, the first tranche of funding from the deal struck a few years ago. That's set to run out at the end of this year, and then renegotiations resume in 2024. And honestly, the outlook is pretty bleak. Meta's cooperation is seen as an impossibility next year. Google perhaps has been a little more agreeable in funding conversations for the small publishers, but largely the sentiment for funding prospects in the coming years is it's quite dismal. And in an environment where advertisers just cannot be relied on to fund journalism anymore, possibly ever again, the money from those deals actually does play a fundamental role in the funding of journalism. And Tim, speaking of market power, it's a little dystopian how much leverage the tech platforms have now in controlling the displaying of news, the very existence of news. I don't know how many people ever expected Google and Meta to become such antagonists in the world of journalism and media. I don't know how many people saw this coming. Tim, did Gina Cascott-Lieb have anything else to say? Yeah, the other thing which I hadn't thought about at all but was super interesting, and this was, I suppose, one of the main uh, points that she wanted to make, is that the way the news media bargaining code rules are written, the AI platforms, the big AI platforms, which have a large amount of or disproportionate amount of bargaining power, could potentially be covered under that same news media bargaining code legislation. 
So in the same way that we've seen conversations go on with Facebook and Google, you could see that threat of designation um, hang over the large language models of, you name it, OpenAI being the biggest. Speaking of AI, big dramas over the weekend with OpenAI, the company that's the founder of ChatGPT, Tim. Can you give us a summary of the complicated boardroom dramas that have just taken place? <laughs> I'm not sure I can, can can give you right the inside boardroom take because nobody knows. This was absolutely fascinating. So this broke Saturday morning Australian time, a couple of hours before we sent out the best of the week newsletter. Uh, and you, you know it's fairly big news when you look at your – uh, podcasting app later, and all of the, the tech podcasts I, I usually follow all had um, what they they all called emergency editions. Now, what they were processing was the very sudden departure of Sam Altman, the CEO, who's really become the face of OpenAI. You know, he not yet as famous as Mark Zuckerberg, but you know, quite quickly was likely to be. So, you know, he was the person who had built OpenAI into this company which you know i think the last time someone talked about the valuation was something like 80 billion dollars or something crazy like that yeah create you know the 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 thing that um that put jack chat gpt on the map you know and it's, it's it's crazy when we think that um you know i've got i've got my diary note for november the 30th to write something about the one year anniversary all of this stuff has happened in the in the last year and anyway he he was dramatically sacked by the board and then um his kind of um, uh, co-founder, Greg Brockman, who was um, president, was also uh, out as well. Now, the really bizarre thing is there's no detail on why. Um, there's talk about being less less than candid, which I think we can read between the lines as lying to the board. And it it feels like it's the the heart of the problem is some sort of thing in Altman's relationship with that board, which um, is a complicated one, not least because the way the company itself is owned is complicated or the organization itself in that, although it's a not-for-profit, um, it, it does own a, or kind of indirectly owns a for-profit company. And it, also feels as if the timing might be something to do with the fact that they had their big developer event um, just a few days back and that um, uh, there were some more big announcements about where they would go next. So that was complicated enough. But then as we're recording this, now it's still Sunday afternoon um, in uh, in the US as we're recording this. And of course, in fact, it might even be Sunday morning. I, 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 I've only been gone a week and I've already not got my time zones right. But anyway, the point is that one of their biggest investors is Microsoft and they're desperate to get everything sorted out before Monday comes along and the, um, the share markets reopen. There are now rumors that Altman and Brockman may actually come back again. Um, and I'm seeing reports literally as we're recording saying that they've been invited back into the company to discuss their reinstatement. So this whole thing might just become known as Sam's weekend off. We'll have to see. <laughs> and that wasn't the only ousting that took place over the weekend. We saw late last night Hamish McLennan was ousted from his position as chairman of Rugby Australia. He's well known in media circles, isn't he? 
Yeah, look, Hamish is. And firstly, this is one of those things where you've just got to feel for the newspapers because the AFR, today's print edition, has got loads on the battle to oust Hamish McKennan, but angled on him hanging on. But we wake up this morning to the news that very late last night, there having been previously three board meetings of Rugby Australia, there was a fourth one, and he's now stepping down. So um, Hamish, quite well known in our world, um, came up through Adland, um, particularly with um, sort of aligned to WPP. Um, he then got very close to News Corp, including in, in, in the office of Rupert Murdoch in the US. Um, he then ended up running Channel 10, he was uh, he was CEO there, so that was the time when Ten brought in, for instance, Big Bash. Um, he's the current chair of REA, the Real Estate Platform Group, which um, again News Corp aligned, and he's also the chairman of ARN Media, who are kind of in the news at the moment. So I don't think we have to feel too sorry for Hamish losing his job, really, because he's got plenty of others. But this was all in the light of Australia's really really terrible performance in the Rugby World Cup where they're out as early as it was possible to be and being very unapologetic for uh, that performance, which I think as much as anything reading between the lines was what seemed to lead to his ousting. It wasn't so much the decisions he made, but more his style, which I think is, um, you know, his, he, he, he's always tended to be, you know, not, not a massive people person, I think it's fair to say. And uh, a non-departure, another person who's today refuting rumours they might be leaving, Michael Miller, the boss of News Corp Australia. Yeah, which is, it's always weird when you do stories about somebody not not leaving. So this is in the Australian Financial Review, who are kind of reporting that there had been some rumours about Michael Miller moving. And then they've actually got an on-the-record quote from him, there are no plans for me to step down or move on. He told the AFR. Now, context of this is the the rumor mill has been crazy ever since a really big profile appeared um, in, I think it was, I can't remember if it was the Sydney Morning Herald or the AFR, I think it was the AFR of Paul Whitaker, who is currently boss of Sky News Australia, which is part of the group, former um, editor of The Telegraph. He, he also has an oversight role for the Australian as well. And there was this huge profile of him positioning him as a future successor with very warm quotes about him from Lachlan Murdoch, from Siobhan McKenna, who's sort of um, one of Lachlan's kind of uh, really trusted confidants who who sits within New News Corp, particularly focused on the TV side of things, and also for Michael Miller himself. And I think that really did start the speculation going. Now... Once you understand how that article came about, which was just it had been worked on for a while, then put on hold, and then the, the, the journalist dusted it off, it wasn't as deliberately placed as I think people had assumed at the time. So I, and I know this is going to bring me such bad luck saying this, but I'm actually willing to take this comment at, um, at face value. You know, I, I, I can't see any reason, so long as he's still got the appetite for it, why uh, the powers that be at News Corp would ask Michael Miller to move on at the moment. Because um, for all of the disruption, I think he's actually doing a pretty good job. 
Next, Southern Cross Stereo's Mystery Investor. Tim, as we wrap up the podcast, news this morning that a mystery buyer has just bought up 4% of radio company Southern Cross Osterio. Other rumours true that it was you or perhaps <laughs> Anthony Catalina, perhaps a bit more accurate. What do you think? <laughs> Definitely not me, as I often have to declare when I write about these things, because I do through my um, self-managed super fund invest in some media shares, I I. I I worked it um, out on a calculator just before we were speaking. I I own 0.01% of Southern Cross Australia and about the same as ARM Media as well, which is... So no risk of a takeover bid there, but the cat might be uh, on the hustings. So since we last spoke, we, 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 we saw it emerge that Catalano's initial approach to Southern Cross or Stereo to kind of make himself a player had been rejected by the board. He he had suggested that he would throw in the newspapers, he and Alex Wastelist's own through Australian community media or most of the newspapers into Southern Cross Osterio, which he made the argument would create a kind of regional powerhouse and also would would deliver them a higher profit number. Um, the the board during the week kind of quickly came back and said, no, we don't like the strategy. We want to be um, an all audio company or audio everywhere or something like that is their strategic line. So that sort of appeared to put an end to it. But yeah, the AFR this morning speculating that is Catalano just trying to build up a kind of blocking stake to make himself awkward, which was a similar thing to what he did when he, he bought a stake in Prime and made it difficult for Seven to take over Prime. So, so you know, he has he has got previous for that sort of thing, and he he didn't succeed in blocking it, but um, in the long term, but he did him did make himself a bit of money along the way. So it could be that again. But that said, the the AFR does say that um, despite fingers appointing to Anthony Catalano, that's the AFR words, um, he um, denies it's him. That again is according to the AFR. So, um, so I guess we'll find out soon enough because, of course, in the end, you always do find out who's bought shares. Well, that's it for today. We'd love to hear what you think at letters at unmade.media. That's letters at unmade.media. And we'll be back tomorrow with Tuesday Data, looking at the Christmas ads appearing on consumers' TV screens this year. We'd love to see you at our Compass Predictions event in Melbourne tomorrow evening. Head to events.humanitics.com slash host slash unmade and get your ticket today. We'd love for you to join us. And Abe has already said that the first three people who approach him, he'll be happy to buy a beer for. Don't forget, if you want to support Unmade, you can become a paying member. Go to unmade.media to find out how. And if that seems like too much trouble, then at least give us a five-star rating on your favourite podcatcher, Tim. Today's podcast was produced with the usual enthusiastic support of Abe's Audio. See you next time. Toodle pen. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.